Amen. Well, and if you're online, how about a round of applause for everyone who's in here? No, online. Online. Um, I wonder if you can remember the most awkward dinner party you were a part of. I wonder if you can remember the most awkward dinner party you've ever heard of. You know, Dad's work um, took us overseas quite a lot, and so we would have a lot of these international dinner parties. And one of our family members, when they were, I'm going to not use names for protection for myself and that person, and uh, I'm going to use PC language just so no one is offended at me. Uh, But one of uh, our family members at the age of four was at one of these parties internationally. And they noticed that there was a man who came from a particular ethnic background when the people were pretty much exclusively of a slender build. And the four-year-old was curious why this man was of generous proportions. And so they asked an adult member of the family, but as four-year-olds often do, they asked quite loudly, why is this man of generous proportions? (laughs) Embarrassed, one of the uh, adult members of the family gently rebuked the child with a, a brush across the face. To which the child responded, why did you hit me? He is fat. (laughs) Well, that was an awkward situation to say the least. But the dinner party that we read about in Luke 14 is awkward because one of the guests at this dinner party is pointing out all of the inconsistencies in the lives of the host and of the uh, other dinner party guests. Well, that sounds like a, a dinner party that you might want to miss out on. And it sounds like a guest that you might not want to have at your next dinner party. Here's the problem. He's the guest that everyone in this room has invited into their heart if they call themselves a Christian. Because Jesus wants to stir up good questions in your heart, unlike the four-year-old. Jesus doesn't come to rent a, a small space or a small room in your heart. He comes to do a complete and total renovation and restoration. Those are popular shows these days, right? He wants to do a complete renovation and restoration of your home. He wants to do a complete renovation and restoration of your heart. And as we submit ourselves to his restoring work, as we submit ourselves to his kingship and his rule in our lives, as we read about what he has called us to, As we read about what his kingdom looks like, we find that he upsets the natural order of things. 
His kingdom does not look like the natural order of things here. They look radically different. So would you join with me in prayer as together we, that we would be able to see what Christ calls his followers to and from and that we would be receptive to his teaching. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that we would have receptive hearts and minds. Father, we know that often Scripture is hard for us to read, and it's often because we have a, a, a sin blockage. There's, a, there's an inability for us to grasp the height and the depth and the, the love and all that comes from your word. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would remove any blockade that sits in the way, whether it be a, a pattern of sin in someone's life, whether it be a, a hardened heart, Lord, that you would reach in, touch, transform everyone from the newest saint to the furthest person. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series on enduring wisdom from Luke's gospel. I must have preached too hard at 9 o'clock. I feel like I'm losing my voice, but um, we're reading in chapter 14, uh, and I'm not going to follow tradition, which is for you to stand up and read it, because we're about to read 24 verses, or rather I am, uh, and I don't want you to be so tired that you have an excuse, which is also in this passage, uh, for falling asleep uh, because you stood up for so long during the reading. So, with all those caveats, uh, page 1621 in the Pew Bible, Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him, a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisee and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, who of you, sorry, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be, hum- will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, 
and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. I, I thought it might be helpful if we did a, a brief overview of who the Pharisees are uh, to help us better understand what's happening here in, this, in these verses. The, the Pharisees were devout and extremely zealous for the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, and for their own extra-biblical laws. The sect originated during the intertestamental period, think between the Old and the New Testament. They were born out of a, uh, a spiritual revolt against the influence of the Greeks and the Romans uh, on thought and culture on the Jewish people. They called for a separation from paganism and a return to the strict adherence to the Old Testament law. The Pharisees were laymen, they were not wealthy like the Sadducees, and they generally came from the middle class. And even though they were few in number, they had a lot of influence on the common man. Ironically, the Pharisees looked down on the common man because the common man was typically ignorant of the law and the Pharisees saw themselves as above them, better than them. Now, their theology in many ways was biblically correct. They believed in the resurrection of uh, they believed in the resurrection, they believed in angels, they believed in demons, they believed in predestination, they believed in human responsibility, and they believed in the Messiah's earthly kingdom. But while having good theology, they failed to live up to their own standards themselves, which is why Jesus calls them hypocrites. They wanted the respect of people, and they wanted the respect of God. And Jesus was revealing their hypocrisy because they were refusing the very message of the gospel. They didn't want a Messiah 
who told them that they needed to confess and repent. They didn't want a Messiah who told them they need to decrease and he needs to increase. They didn't want a Messiah who opposed the things that they stood for. And so we enter into this dinner party where it is the Sabbath and Jesus has been invited as a participant of this dinner. And verse 1 says, they were watching him carefully. Just by reference, I'm reading from the ESV because that's what I was teaching at 9 o'clock. So if you're confused, just I think I trust you can follow along. They were watching him carefully. What a strange line to put in there, right? Who invites, well, maybe you do invite dinner guest people and you, uh, you're watching particular people closely for whatever reason. I'm not going to get into that. It's your beef. Uh, but the Pharisees were wanting to find fault with Jesus. They were wanting to find a reason to bring him down. And they found plenty. But they weren't legitimate reasons. They were, they were when he would go against whatever their man-made law was, whatever the, the, the tradition that they held to went against, whenever he was teaching against the power that they were going after that they shouldn't have been. Then in verse 2, we read, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, is this a setup by the Pharisees or not? Was this, is this an intentional thing that this man is here or not? I don't know. Maybe the man really did just happen to be there at that time. Uh, I, I seriously doubt that he would have been invited to this dinner party unless it was for a sinister purpose, a, a way to trap Jesus. But nevertheless, this man shows up. Now, if you remember from a, a few weeks ago, when Jesus is asked about the people who were massacred in Galilee by Pilate, and then Jesus refers to the people who died in Jerusalem when the Tower of Siloam fell over. The, the Jewish people thought that these things were God's immediate judgment on sin, that they were all deserving of that just punishment. And Jesus was saying, this is not how things work, that these things happen and what is more important is that you have a repentant heart and that you are in good standing with God. Well, these leaders certainly would have thought that this man with dropsy was in his condition, uh, that there was a reason that he was in his condition that he's in. A dropsy is just when there's a, a collection of fluid and a swelling uh, in, in, a, in parts of your body and it's, it's, it's a condition of the disease. It is not actually the disease itself. So here it is. It's a Sabbath, and here comes this man. What will Jesus do? He healed the woman that was bent over double in uh, chapter 13 on the Sabbath. Will he do it again? Remember, there is nothing preventing healing on the Sabbath in the law of Moses. The only place you find that restriction is in the traditions of the elders, in their own uh, uh, traditional writings. And so Jesus speaks before he does anything, almost like a disarming maneuver. It's brilliant. 
Because he sees through their plan if it is intentional, or he sees through their legalism whether it's intentional or not. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day or not? Well, if it was a straightforward answer, I'm sure they would have responded, but they were silent. Because they know the law of Moses doesn't condemn this. Then he took him, the man with dropsy, and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. What is Jesus showing in this healing? He he is showing the character of God. That God is a merciful God. God is less concerned with what the religious leaders think. He's not concerned with what uh, the man-made laws of the Pharisees uh, say. He's concerned with a man who is suffering. And what better day than the Sabbath to display the God of creation's authority over his creation? He is not violating the law. He is violating their law that they have created. And sometimes we can do this as well. We can create a law by which we think God should operate. And when that law is broken, we feel violated by God. I talked to a man the other day who was armed to try to refute God to me. Well, Scripture is corrupted. Uh, There's inconsistencies in the Bible. Uh, How do we even know Jesus existed? Well, finally, we got down to the core issue. He had grown up in the church, uh, and he had a, a family member who died at a young age. She was a believer, but the circumstances around her life and her death upset him so greatly. And he saw no justice in that process from his perspective. His world operates by his rules, And if God existed, he had to operate within those rules. And the second that those rules he's created have been broken, to him, God must not exist. This, beloved, are the consequences of creation trying to make rules for the creator. Just as the Pharisees had done with Jesus. These are our rules that we've created, and you have to live by them. If that's how you are living, you will never be satisfied. You cannot put God into a box. Well, if you remember earlier, I told you that the the Pharisees wanted the respect of people. And one of the people groups that they wanted the respect from most was each other. So we read in verse 7. Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down at the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, 
He may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, can I say this could be interpreted as a self-serving strategy for achieving recognition that you fake self-deprecation, that you have a, a false sense of humility. <gasps> Who, me? Oh, okay, I'll sit in the seat of honor. And you recognize that I was humble? How wonderful. This is a double-edged sword. Jesus, you're brilliant. I'm using this. But that's not what he's talking about here. He is advocating genuine humility that waits for eschatological vindication and dependence on God's gracious gift. Now, you see, I've used big theological terms to impress you with how smart I am. <laughs> and now I'm going to break it down for you so you can see how humble I am. <laughs> You're catching on, I see. <clears throat> you can be humble when you recognize your value. Your worth is not wrapped up in what you know or anything that gives you a false sense of identity. You can be humble when your identity is secure in Christ. Paul says to the, the church in Corinth, when I came to you, I did, not, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul knew the Greek uh, rhetorical techniques of the day, but he didn't want people to be impressed with him. <laughs> he didn't want Corinthians to sit there and think, wow, Paul is impressive. He is brilliant. He wanted them to sit and listen and say, wow, Jesus is impressive. You don't need the impressive seat among the group because you know the actual value in the grand scheme of things is not that great. Now, the recognition here that is made at the end, the, the, the being recognized for your humility, is likely describing the recognition that takes place with God in the heavens at the end of days. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I struggle with this, to be completely transparent with you. I, want, I would like people to think highly of me because of my abilities. Uh, I want people to find me competent. In fact, uh, a friend of mine runs a software, and then you kind of do your personality test. And he said, your biggest thing is that you, you want people to so desperately find you competent. So if anyone ever says anything about my incompetence, I, I clam up and I shut down. <sighs> I got to stop confessing all these things to you guys. <laughs> but here's the thing. I am always impressed when I meet a genuinely impressive person who carries themselves in a way as to not be concerned, concern themselves with these sorts of things. In other words, I am impressed with genuine humility, not false humility. And I, then I begin to think, well, that's what I really want. I want that. 
But I'm not there yet, so please pray for me, and I'll pray for you. This always reminds me of George, uh, the story of George Whitfield, his quote uh, about John Wesley, and I know you've, you've probably heard it a number of times, but, you know, he and Wesley had uh, theological uh, disagreements on, on different matters, but, but Whitfield was careful not to create problems in public that would detract from the, the, the authenticity and the power of the gospel. And so when someone asked Whitfield if he thought he would see Wesley in heaven, Whitfield replied, I fear not. Gotcha. Uh, For he will be so near the eternal throne, and we at such a distance, we shall hardly get sight of him. That, brothers and sisters, is genuine humility. Well, then Jesus moves from uh, the rejection of self-interest as a guest to the rejection of self-interest as a host, if you're following along with our banquet theme here. Someone pointed out to me at 9 o'clock that all the talk about food and feast and banquet was just making them hungry. So, uh, well, again, that's your own problem. Uh, (laughs) He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What, what, what is the lesson here? What is the, what is the lesson he's teaching from this parable? Stop having your rich friends over for meals. Five people got that. Uh, Stop having your family over. Thanksgiving is canceled. Well, COVID nearly did that. Uh, I don't think that's the point. That can't really be the point here because rich people need friends too, right? No one got that one. Uh, The idea here is reciprocity right? It's this mutual exchanging back and forth. And the question here is, what do you value? What is of value to you? Do you seek to advance your own status and your own agenda? Then by all means, spend your time and your energy with those who will benefit your status and your agenda in the here and now. By all means, But if you seek to serve the role that the humble person takes, then you will seek the benefit of those who may not benefit you in this life, in the here and now. The poor brothers and sisters, those without material means, I can tell you I have been more edified, encouraged, and challenged over a cheap bowl of noodles with a godly person than I have been over an expensive meal with a person of little substance. Jesus healed a man with dropsy at the beginning of this chapter. I would assume that he was a man of of little means. I wonder if the Pharisees would think differently if he was a man of extraordinary means. Or if he was a person with great political connections. Or, or if he was a, a person who was good at repaying a favor. Jesus says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do not focus on the here and now. Consider eternity with your actions while you're in the here and now. 
So your actions in the here and now, are they setting up for treasures in heaven or are you only trying to reap back what you can here? Your humility and your deeds will be recognized and repaid in the afterlife. Well, if you have not noticed, this has been a terribly awkward dinner party so far. Jesus sees what, uh, what may be a, a setup, and he, he addresses it at the, at the forefront uh, uh, in regards to mercy and the, and the Sabbath. And then they could not reply to him. They couldn't answer any of his questions. And then he tells a parable addressing the very thing that they're doing at the dinner party. How they're seeking honor in the here and now. And, and I would imagine the guests are wondering, why would this guy invite Jesus to this party? He is clearly a big party pooper. <laughs> well, then Jesus mentions, as we just alluded to, the resurrection of the just or the righteous. And one of the guests, and I love this, and I really hope this is true, because I can't say for certain that this is what he's done. But if he's done this, he's, he's brilliant. He sees the opportunity to change the subject. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's an expression that, that, that assumes that the kingdom of God is in the very distant future. And it's a safe and it's a pious utterance to say, okay, we've talked about that enough. Let's talk about something else. He's probably hoping that Jesus will say, exactly. This is exactly what I'm talking about. I'm so glad you said something. Come have a seat in the seat of honor. Just kidding. Um, <clears throat> but essentially what this man has just done is handed dynamite to Jesus to absolutely blow this discussion even deeper as if it could go even further because Jesus seizes the opportunity to dig in even further with these religious leaders to destroy the strongholds of religious formalism and hypocrisy. Whoops. Because everyone at this dinner party thought for sure that when the day came at the end of the age, they would be at the feast in the kingdom of God. For sure they would be there because they had ticked all of the religious boxes, because they had all of the right associations and titles. And Jesus says, if this is how you think, let me tell you a story. A story about a man who prepared a great banquet and he invited many guests. Now, I think it's important here that we, we, we note that Jesus uses this illustration of a, of a banquet or, or a feast to describe heaven. It is a thing of great joy. He doesn't describe it as a waiting room or, or a holding cell. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great family get-together, a great family affair. It's a feast. So a general invitation goes out that there will be a banquet. This was customary to do this. It'd be like a save the date for us today, right? At some point, we're going to have a big feast, and we want you to come. The feast that the man at the dinner party brings up, possibly to change the subject, is the very feast or banquet that Jesus is now referring to. 
And the imagery of the general invitation as it relates to the kingdom of God, these people in the room were recipients of that general uh, invitation. The general invitation that had come from the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah that said, there's a feast coming and you need to be ready. There is a kingdom being established and you are invited. And the people at this dinner party couldn't miss this point that Jesus is making in verse 17. And the time for the banquet, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Can everyone say now? now. <laughs> Always wanted to do that. <clears throat> It was no longer that the kingdom was coming. It was that the kingdom is here now. The invitations went out. Now the question was whether you are coming or not. Again, we cannot miss the point that, that this is something of great joy. It's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. God is graciously inviting us to his banquet, his heaven, greater than anything that we could dream of. And now the decision is whether you go or not. And you begin to realize that the excuses that are given here in relation to the banquet are representative of the kinds of responses made by men and women when invited into the kingdom of God. Someone's heading to the kingdom of God now. <laughs> the first person says, I just bought a field and I must go see it. You cannot wait until tomorrow to go and look at this field. I mean, that's how silly this is. I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I need to examine them. Listen, coming from a Middle Eastern family, uh, brother, ain't nobody buying oxen without examining them <laughs> and getting a deal. That's not an insult, that's a compliment. But it's not a good reason here. It is an excuse, and the best is the third one. I, I can't, he doesn't even say, please excuse me, I realized in the third one. He says, I, I can't come, I just got married. Okay, well, why not? It's my wife, she won't let me come. <laughs> it's like, excuses, 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 and they aren't even good. They aren't even good. They sound silly and ridiculous. And every excuse is saying to the host, I have something better to do. I'm sure we've all been invited to parties that we thought, uh, maybe not. I, and then you have to be creative with something and you don't want to lie, so then you say, I've got important, you know, green things I have to take care of or something, and you're just cutting the grass. That's a terrible example. Sorry. It's saying to the host, I have greater desires than spending time in your company. And this fits with our theme of, of humility and, and exaltation from our earlier verses. The excuses are made because attendance at the banquet, please don't miss this, the excuses are made because attendance at the banquet requires humility. 
Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who recognize their spiritual poverty. There is humility in that. The exaltation is not in the here and now, which is what the guests at this party wanted. That's why they're all gunning for the seat of honor. They want the exaltation now. They don't want to wait till later, or they think it'll be even greater later. And so they miss out on just how amazing it is to have been invited to the banquet. They're missing how gracious the host was to think of them. And these are the excuses that men and women give when invited into the kingdom of God. Is it any surprise that the host of the banquet becomes angry? But you see, he doesn't respond in a a vengeful way. But instead, he he responds with more grace. What a loving and gracious host. So he orders the servant to go into the streets and the alleys to bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. He wants to share his blessings with whoever will come. Do you think the host is justified in being angry? When the general invitation was extended and the response was, yes, we will be there, But when the time came for arrival, the invitees didn't want to be there. And God looks down from heaven, having made admission free, and at the expense of the death of his son, has sent out his servants to invite you to come and take your place at the feast. And the responses come in, I'm sorry, I have something else to do, or I really have something, I think, better to do. I have a family. I have things to look after. Your banquet doesn't actually look all that impressive as the initial invitation made it sound. Historically, this is a message uh, to the righteous, those who had the benefit of looking for the coming of the Messiah to usher in the kingdom of God. But the excuses come. So the servants bring in the poor and the blind and the cripple and the lame. People that don't often get invited to these types of things. People that don't have a field to look after. They don't have oxen to examine. This is the tax collectors. This is the prostitutes. This is the, these are the sinners that Jesus went to. But there is still room at the banquet, and so it is that the Gentiles are brought in by the highways and the hedges. What is the lesson through this? What is the lesson through this parable? I think it is twofold. One, if you have had the benefit of growing up with the familiarity of Christ, and I know there are those of us in this room that this is the case. And you have perhaps mistaken familiarity with what he said for a genuine, repentant, trusting faith in what he did. This explains the disconnect between what you say and what you do. 
Are you empowered by the Spirit of God, putting your trust in the Son of God? Not all who profess Jesus will continue to the end and be saved. The Bible makes that clear. Many will cry out, Lord, Lord, we performed miracles in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. The confidence you can have is if you have put your trust in Christ and recognize your invitation to the banquet. Your salvation, that your salvation is by grace alone through Christ alone. You see, the Pharisees, as we said earlier, they wanted to impress people and they wanted to impress God. How? By keeping the law. But you cannot keep the law. I hate to break it to you. You cannot keep the law. The point of the law was to show you your failure and your need of grace. But accepting grace requires humility. I cannot keep the law. I need some other means by which I can be saved. That requires humility that you cannot do it in yourself. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. The second lesson is for those who do not feel worthy. And sometimes we feel both of these things back and forth. We don't feel worthy, and we feel very righteous, and we don't feel worthy, and we go back and forth. But but you see, the person who doesn't feel worthy, you you see the difference here? It's one thinks they are saved by the wrong means, the, the, the keeping of the law, they're there for their exaltation. The other thinks themselves unworthy. You're abundantly aware of your sin in your life, but you don't know where to go with it or, or, or what to do with it. Church is not a gathering of people who have cleansed themselves enough to walk in through the doors. Church is the gathering of people who know that they are not inherently worthy. But because of Christ, I can come as a redeemed person. Just FYI, I'm not good with clapping, so. I'm just like, no, no, oh my gosh. Guys are terrible. And the message to you, if you feel you are not worthy, you you need to know that there is no sin so great or so repetitive that God will reject you if you are willing to receive his grace, to recognize your inability to do it on your own. So you see... This awkward dinner party was for the benefit of those who were willing, willing to hear and receive, willing to see the kingdom of God for what it is, willing to receive the good news. This awkward dinner party was for our benefit. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm not very good at getting my sermon outlined to people on time. Uh, It's just a struggle of mine. Another thing you can pray for me. Uh, But I I was thinking this morning, if this sermon had points, 
It would be this. One, how do you view God? How do you view his invitation to the banquet? Right? This is a vertical axis issue. How do I view God? Do I, how do I relate to him? Are you like the man that I talked to last week who, who has created your own laws and, and you, you refuse to listen to him? You refuse to read his word? You come up with excuses? And the second is on the horizontal. How do you view man? The guests at the party. Who are you inviting to the dinner? Who are you uh, uh, spending your time with? Is it to advance your own kingdom? Is it to advance your own agenda, your own strategy, your own status? Are you gunning for the seat of honor? Or do you see people in need of care and Christ? It's an upside-down kingdom. And we just celebrated last week the climax of humility. And in our story, as we've been progressing through Luke's gospel, do you know what's happening? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And he is abundantly aware of what is coming. That that day is getting closer and closer and closer when he will lay it all down for those who put their trust in him so that we too will be exalted in the end of days. And now we're going to celebrate the Holy Communion. What We're celebrating that humiliation of Christ. And we are remembering our need for humility in accepting grace. And we do that with one another, encouraging one another. It's a, it's a celebration, the celebration of communion. So as we, uh, I'm going to walk down here in a moment, but as we celebrate those things, have that in your mind, the, the, the understanding of, of humility and exaltation, the need for grace, but the looking forward to the day when we can rejoice in all that Christ has accomplished in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we gun for that seat of honor. We know that that is our natural human condition, and we know that anything that even has a whiff of humility in this day and age has been borrowed from the Christian faith, from the tenets that were passed down. And yet people want to claim uh, humility and yet they really just want exaltation. And I see myself in these Pharisees at times, and it breaks my heart. And so, Father, I want to remember genuine humility. I want to remember what Christ has done for me and that my response should not be one of arrogance, but one that responds in humility because we know that the exaltation is coming and it is far better to be humble here and exalted later than exalted here and humbled later. So Father, minister to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.